Matthew chapter 5 in our Bibles again this evening. And if you've been with us on a regular basis, you know that we've been studying the book of Matthew together in our morning services. But last week uh, and tonight, in light of even the, the topic, subject matter, the text, uh, we've uh, shifted that. And so we're looking here, picking up where we've been in our series uh, here in Matthew chapter 5. This is the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And in verse number 20 of Matthew 5, he made a very provocative statement. He said, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that was provocative because the scribes and Pharisees in that day were the most externally religious and respected men. So what kind of obedience could there be that was greater than theirs, that exceeded theirs? And one answer to that question is that the righteousness God demands is not just external letter of the law. Some thought that if they had not murdered someone, then they could not possibly be guilty of unrighteousness when it came to the Sixth Commandment. But Jesus said in verse number 21, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. But in verse 22, he goes on to say that you can violate that with passions of the heart and even words of the mouth. You can be guilty before God of violating the sixth commandment, not by the taking of life, but by what's going on on the inside and what's coming out the mouth. And in a similar way, some of those Pharisees and, and the common people as well thought that if they had been uh, physically, if they had not been physically unfaithful to their spouse, then they could not possibly be guilty of unrighteousness when it came to the seventh commandment. Sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. But again, Jesus taught... Verse 27, you've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So the seventh commandment could be violated by what's going on in the heart as someone looks with desire. And in addition to that, Jesus makes a second application of this same a seventh commandment, when he says in verse number 31, if you'll look there, it hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. So <clears throat> Jesus is saying, here's a second way the seventh commandment can be violated. Adultery is not just somebody being unfaithful, physically unfaithful to the spouse they are married to. Adultery includes looking with unlawful desire. And adultery also includes divorce that contributes to remarriage. And Jesus said twice in this verse that that is adultery. Now, I do want to point out an underlying 
kind of cultural phenomena that must be kept in mind for, for this pronouncement of Jesus to really kind of grip us uh, and, and, and be understood. In every culture that I've been able to read about that any historian has commented on, divorce typically grants the right for remarriage. And it assumes the probability of remarriage. And that's why Jesus said, again, if you look at it in verse 32, that if a man puts away his wife, he causes her. The middle of the verse. I say to you, I'm going to skip over the exception for a second. That whosoever shall, ma- uh, shall put away his wife causeth her to commit adultery. And that word cause is used hundred times, hundreds of times in the scripture to refer to making something happen, setting something in motion. It's actually used to describe God's creation of the world and, and to describe some of his, uh, his other works where he had a definite purpose in mind, a stated outcome, and he set it in motion to accomplish it. So Jesus is teaching here that when a man divorces his wife, He is creating an atmosphere where in all likelihood she's going to marry again and by doing so will be committing adultery. And the fact that remarriage after divorce is an act of adultery is actually the plain statement of multiple other texts as well. We looked at those last week, so I'm not going to turn there again. Hopefully you have notes in your margin here, but Mark chapter 10 Luke chapter 16, Romans chapter 7, all of those, again, restate and in crystal clear terms that remarriage after divorce is an act of adultery. 1 Corinthians 7 declares that if an unbelieving partner departs while the believing spouse is not under bondage or, as it were, liable for divorce... The two options that are still on the table are to remain unmarried or be reconciled to their spouse. All right, so those statements are, are so clear okay, and, and uh, straightforward. But even with those statements repeatedly and seemingly clear, Singleness after divorce was in that day, and it really is even in our day, so much of in the minority, almost to the place that it was unheard of, that Jesus could say when a man puts away his wife, he's creating an atmosphere of adultery, and he's making himself liable to breaking the seventh commandment. Right Now, while all of that is just taking his words at face value, There is an expression here in our text. It's repeated again in chapter 19 of Matthew. And it has been interpreted remarkably different by Bible readers and Bible teachers. The expression here in Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 5 and verse number 32 is saving for the cause of fornication. Notice again, I say to you that whosoever shall put away his wife saving for the cause of fornication, right? That same expression in Matthew 19 is translated, except it be for fornication, all right? And that expression, except it be for fornication, is what has given rise to this clause being labeled the what clause? Anybody know? The exception clause, all right? 
what is the exception referring to? And some have, under the weight of, of, of sympathetic feelings for those in hard marital situations, some have interpreted this expression as if it refers to really nearly any so-called big offense of any kind. I, I know of a good man who, as a consistent pattern, has been marked by careful Bible study, but has added into this expression, and it blew my mind when I understood it, but he has added into this expression uh, even something like emotional abandonment and, and told a woman who felt like she was being grievously neglected. And I, from what I could tell from a distance, she was being grievously neglected by her husband. But counseled her that because she had been so grievously neglected, she had the right to divorce and remarry. Now, I, I just cannot see, I, I listened again from somewhat of a distance and a little bit of engagement in it. Um, I've, I've listened to others talk about counsel they have received. And then I go back to the scripture and I just say, I can't see how that is giving weight at all to the words Jesus spoke. All right? Jesus didn't say, right? He did not say, except of course, She's not giving you the attention that you think is right in marriage. Then, okay, you're free. Or anything of the sort. So whatever we do with the exception clause, we actually have to wrestle with what did Jesus say? And, and not load in and, and dump in a bunch of other stuff that comes nowhere close to the words that Jesus spoke and the Spirit of God is obviously superintended to be written here. Now, some that are attempting, from my perspective, to give much more weight to the words that Jesus spoke have suggested that we focus on the term fornication and note that it is not adultery. All right, if you look again, <clears throat> whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication. They have kind of seized on the fact that there is a Greek word for adultery, and that is not used here, and that this is the word, most general term from which we get the whole idea of pornography and everything that would be in that arena. Okay? And, and what they comment on is that something unique is going on here. So they would suggest something like there must be a type of fornication that fits the setting that wasn't adultery. Right? That's the suggestion some have made. Now, adding to that observation is the fact that the exception, and I'm, what I'm about to tell you is not just somebody else's interpretation, attempt to wrestle through it. What I'm about to tell you are the facts. Okay? The exception clause, as we're referring to it looking at it here, is only mentioned here in Matthew. Okay? When you go to Mark, Mark's straightforward statement has no exception. When you go to Luke, Luke's straightforward statement has no exception. When you go to Romans chapter 7, there's no exception. There's no attempt at clarification. <clears throat> it's just straight. If you marry somebody else, it's adultery. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as I've just said, there's two options. Remain single or be reconciled. No exception. 
So some have seized on the fact, again, that there must be something unique going on here in Matthew. This use of the term fornication as opposed to adultery, <clears throat> the fact that it's only in Matthew, it's not in Mark, Luke, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. So is there something, okay, that can explain the uniqueness here? And some, as they explore that, say yes. The answer is the Jewish betrothal period fits the information very well. And you may remember, surrounding the birth of Jesus, that Mary was betrothed, right, to marry Joseph when she was found with child conceived by the Holy Spirit. But when Joseph first learned of Mary's pregnancy, and he thought what any man would think in that situation, Matthew 1 tells us that Joseph was pretty well decided to put Mary away, which would be our expression for what? Divorce. He was, he had pretty well decided to put her away privately. And you may recall, or may not, because we had to move pretty quickly, but last week we noted that one of the options the Old Testament allowed for when it came to impurity during the betrothal period was a more private step to put away. The stronger option that a man could take was to publicly prove her unfaithfulness and actually pursue capital punishment. But Joseph had pretty well concluded to take the most merciful course of action. All right? But even the most merciful course of action called for divorce to end the betrothal period. Okay, now, <clears throat> there is indication, we have seen it already in our series, that, that Matthew's record of the gospel was written in particular to a Jewish audience that maintained this kind of a practice. Okay? Mark <clears throat> was written primarily to a Roman audience. Um, Luke, primarily written with a Greek audience in view. Okay? And those cultures did not practice the same idea as Jewish betrothal. Right? So if, if this interpretation is accurate, then the exception clause had reference to one particular practice of one particular culture, and that was to unfaithfulness um, during the betrothal period that was practiced by the Jews. Okay, now, this is the position of very conservative fundamentalists, right? All the way to what I might even call more moderate fundamentalists, okay? And this is actually the, the, the position of some that would not label themselves fundamentalists at all. Okay, but wrestle with the passage. Okay? And, and I'm saying all of that to say, I think that it does, uh, it does call for legitimate wrestling with this. Okay? People that are trying to work with the text, seeing is there something unique going on in Matthew that's, that isn't present in the others. <clears throat> and then go back and actually can cross-reference to Matthew chapter 1, and all of what took place with Jesus have landed at 
what Jesus is saying is the only time where divorce that, pre- that presents the case for remarriage in all likelihood and all of that being committing adultery is when you take a step to put away because of unfaithfulness in the betrothal period. All right, now, there are some who are not comfortable with landing on this position. And I'm just going to go ahead and say, uh, that's where I'm at. I'm not comfortable with landing at that position because there is so much argument from silence. And what I'm saying is, I'm having to come back and say, I think this is what's going on in Matthew, and that's the reason why it isn't in Mark and Luke and Romans and 1 Corinthians. And we don't have anything in the scripture text to actually confirm that that's what Jesus said. And I have to look to a a fair amount of extra-biblical historical data. And I have been in ministries and served in ministries and and been under men that held that position, and I'm thankful for them. And I support it in every way. But when I had to wrestle with it myself, I just was like, uh, I'm, uh, again, there's arguments from silence, extra-biblical uh, records that have to go into there. And so I, I do come back to still wrestling with what's in the text. And it is interesting that the word fornication is used, except it be for fornication. Why not just say, that the only time where you're not committing adultery is when your spouse has already committed adultery. And because they've already committed adultery and broken the marriage covenant, that's why you're not responsible. There is something that seems to be going on with this use of the word fornication. And that really sent me, and it didn't send me just on my own, but with encouragement from multiple other sources to look at what would the Jews of the first century have understood the word fornication to be referring to as, as Jesus is speaking here. Okay? And, and when you first start to just look at the word, okay, the word involves sexual sin that could range all the way from really even pornography up to a single act of unfaithfulness all the way to a repeated, unrepentant lifestyle that essentially amounts to something like harlotry. Okay, the, word, the word can be used for all of that. <clears throat> but the Jews at the time of Jesus were not typically reading the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay? The Jews, even at the time of Jesus were reading the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That was their common Bible. Um, And you may know the title of that, some of you, that is the Septuagint. And and I want to have you turn uh, back to Genesis 38, and we want to turn to the, the first time that term is used in our Old Testament. So that the word we're talking about here, pornea, How was that word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament scripture? And we're going to look at the first usage. And it's found in Genesis 38 and verse 24. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the what? 
hath played the harlot. Now it's interesting that in this translation, they have taken the Greek term pornea and translated it as harlot. Now as soon as you hear harlot or harlotry, I think you recognize that as not being a one-time act, but something that is of a repeated nature. All right now, I'm not going to walk through reference after reference. I have a friend that took four months um, outside of his own normal pastoral responsibilities. He took four months with all of his extra discretionary time to study every occurrence of the word porneia in that Greek version of the Old Testament. And his conclusion was that this word referred to unlawful intimacy that was habitual and constant. Um, Some of you know the name of Dr. Randy Yeagley. Dr. Yeagley has recently retired. Um, But he defines the term as habitual, unrepentant, unlawful intimacy. So he, he has stated in writing, again, what my friend discovered just looking at every reference, and I have looked at a number of those to see it for myself. But what these several and others have concluded is that the Septuagint uses the term to describe, Dr. Yeagley says it this way, outrageous promiscuity on the part of a spouse. All right, now why is that significant? Well, that is different than a spouse being involved in an adulterous relationship that they later repent of. Right? This is talking about a a flagrant, hardened lifestyle from which a spouse will not turn. Now, what is very interesting about the use of the term, as, as I'm talking about at this point, is that this is the very reason that God spoke figuratively of divorcing Israel. I'm not going back now to Jeremiah, but I'm reading in Jeremiah now. It was just over a week ago that I was in Jeremiah chapter 3. And in Jeremiah chapter 3, God said, he, he portrayed Israel as if she was his wife and she had broken the covenant and he was putting her away. And it wasn't merely adultery. He actually, God actually refers to it as prolonged, unrepentant harlotry. And for that purpose, God was putting away his own wife uh, as, he, as he portrays Israel in that covenant relationship to him. Now, additional potential support for seeing this idea in our text is the viewpoint of some of the prominent voices in Christianity in the first several centuries after Christ. And I say potential support uh, because those men did not write under inspiration. In some cases, they were in considerable error, so they're not our authority. They're often referred to as the church what? As the church fathers, all right? But if you go back and read some of the church fathers from those early centuries, um, their close proximity to the apostles' generation does at least give us a window into life in the early church. And several of them took the stance 
that it would actually be wrong for a man to continue in a marriage relationship with a repeatedly immoral, unrepentant spouse. Okay, one man named Hermas, and any of you that have had any of that uh, ancient church history is often referred to as the shepherd of Hermas, right? The, the pastor of Hermas. He wrote in around 140, 150, and he ends up being quoted by multiple other uh, leaders all the way up through into the 300s. You can see them quoting Hermas. This is what Hermas said. Right? He said, if the husband knows of her sin and his wife does not repent, but persists in her immorality, and the husband continues to live with her, then he becomes guilty of her sin and partner in her adultery. So I know I don't have it up on the screen, and you're not reading what I'm reading, but, but Hermas was saying... Look, if the husband knows of her sin, and it is prolonged, and it is unrepentant, but he continues to live with her, it's almost like he's saying, he's not only condoning it, it's like he's aiding and abetting it. And he becomes partner in her adultery. Now, that was, according to some historians, a very standard view. I don't think I can, can state it okay, that strongly, but I do think from the practice of the Lord, right? I'm going back to God with his people in a covenant relationship. I do think that from his practice, there may be a time where persistent, unrepentant immorality may actually have to be disciplined by a spouse separating for a time with nor- from normal relations. Okay? God was disciplining his unrepentant, persistently unrepentant, unfaithful spouse by putting her away. And I do think there may be a, a, a case for that. Now, I do want to come back to this, and, and, and I say this, I've, I've had to counsel this actually within the last couple of weeks, not in our area, not in our church and not in our area, I should say that, but had to counsel just within a couple of weeks. <laughs> we have to keep in mind that when the Lord did, I'm going to use the expression, when he divorced his people, it was never in his mind with a full and final separation in view. Because right in Jeremiah, he talks about putting them away because of their harlotry. But he goes on to talk about the glorious reunion they will know when she gets right with, with, with him. So his action was disciplinary, and his action was with a view to repentance and ultimate restoration. That was the heartbeat. It was not, I'm done with you, I can move on to others. It's, I'm disciplining you, and I look forward to the day when you will repent and return, and we'll be reconciled. Now, with all of that said, I I do think that the Lord's exception in Matthew 5... Um, could have been even just the simple statement to the effect of this. If your spouse has already been unfaithful and they are unrepentant and you are forced to take some action that you didn't want to take, under those circumstances, you are not guilty of adultery. All right? Because what is the context? The context is saying... You've heard people say of old time, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, 
that doesn't happen just by breaking the marriage covenant yourself. That happens with the heart as you look with unlawful desire. And that can happen with uh, putting your spouse away, creating an atmosphere of adultery. And the only time where that is not the case is where you have had to take action you didn't want to take because of a repeatedly unfaithful and unrepentant spouse. One purpose might be like that of the Lord to actually get that wayward spouse's attention to seek them repent. But sometimes a spouse can even be involved in in something that is so dangerously unhealthy. They want to return home and have normal relations. And, And sometimes this can actually just be devastating. When I was an assistant, I knew of a man that our pastor was was primarily dealing with and um, he uh, had left his wife repeatedly and our, our pastor actually counseled her to take a step that uh, our state allowed for which was legal separation I have not even looked into that here in South Carolina but there could be a legal separation that involved distancing and involved protection of finances and a number of things without actually divorcing. She didn't want to. When I found out that he had, that he had actually um, it counseled her taking separation, I actually went into him and I was upset. I said, what you, how can you counsel separation? And, and uh, part of it was that I hadn't even considered some of the passages I'm looking at with you tonight. But, but he started to tell me, he said, Tom, He's, he's left repeatedly. When he leaves, he's primarily hanging out and rotating in different drug houses, essentially, where there's all kinds of immorality, and there's all kinds of drug abuse. There's needles and all kinds of lacking of hygiene, and, and, um, and he said when he comes home, <clears throat> saying that, you know, um, he wants to get back together, he wants his wife to participate in normal relations, which have opens up all kinds of a potential devastation but every time he goes back and leaves he he empties bank accounts and the last time when he was telling me this he had actually found cash money that she had put away uh, to pay for her kids her little kids at that time music lessons and he had found that and run off with it and he just said we're, we're looking at a man that is persistent in his unrepentant immorality it could be devastating to his wife, devastating to his children, and somehow that we've got to get his attention, and, and, and we've got to help to protect. All right? Later, down the road, as I got to these passages and have seen the Lord's, the Lord's handling his own unfaithful uh, bride that way, I've said, there, there is precedent for this. Now, I'm obviously communicating that I am leaning towards the understanding of the expression being this. When a spouse has already been unfaithful and unrepentant to the kind of degree that some action must be taken to limit the horrible consequences of sin, then you aren't, if you're the one that has to say, look, we've got to have separation or if it, if it calls for it, divorce. If you have to take that step, you aren't committing adultery. They have already been adulterous by their own activity. Now, if, if all of this is difficult to follow, okay, where we're landing, 
Here is where there is significant application to how we counsel people in our day. Okay. My best understanding of the exception clause is that it is not saying, you know, you can't get remarried unless or except your former spouse commits adultery. Then you've got the freedom to do it. Okay. The exception clause is saying anytime you initiate separation and or divorce, you're guilty of adultery unless and except in situations where you are forced to take that action because of the habitual unrepentant immorality on the part of the spouse. All right, now, I know people are not thinking that way. You're not thinking as lightly as I'm going to state it right now. Okay? But the exception clause is not your ticket to remarry. Okay? The exception clause is saying the only time you're not guilty of adultery in initiating a separation is when you are forced to take that step because of the extended unrepentant immorality of a spouse that really is putting perhaps other lives in jeopardy and, and needs to be woken up to their sin. Right now, I do have to underscore tonight an observation that we've already alluded to. And that is that no matter what direction someone does go with the exception clause, maybe somebody does come back to the betrothal, um, maybe somebody finds a way that I have not seen in the Bible to kind of dump a bunch of other offenses in here. Okay? Or maybe somebody that is genuinely wrestling with the words and just says that even a single adulterous act grants the right to divorce. Right? I, I'm, I'm raising all those that are at least wrestling with the, the passage, right? No matter where you go with the exception clause, what I can't find is any scriptural statement that says, go ahead, you have allowance and even encouragement to remarry after divorce. Okay? I, I can't find that anywhere. And I mentioned last week, I've been in that situation. Okay, as a son, watching one parent remain single and another parent remarry. And had to wrestle through is, is there any scriptural encouragement to that and or even allowance? Now, if someone were to then say to me, Pastor, I'm not trying to get out of anything. I'm not trying to get around anything. I just want to know the mind of the Lord. I was married. I'm now divorced. And my former spouse has already remarried. There's no possibility of reconciliation. Okay, what would the Lord's mind be for me? Okay, you follow that? I, I was married. I'm divorced. My former spouse is already remarried. There's no possibility of reconciliation. What would, what would the Lord's mind be for me? And I, I just want to look at a couple, if you will, case studies and, and, and try to answer them. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. And, and while you're turning there, let me just mention the first scenario. And that is, what if, what if you are not unfaithful? 
to your spouse, but, but he or she was tired of you for whatever reason and, and put you away. All right? And, and you are what is often referred to as the what party? What is that often? The innocent party. Okay? If someone is, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use that, no one is, is um, completely innocent, right? But relatively, in, in, in the sense that we're talking about it, if, if you are the innocent party, okay, would there be anything wrong with you getting remarried? Well, again, look here in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32. I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. All right, so, again, you can see in those statements what I've said, the assumption that that in culture after culture, divorce grants the right, almost the expectation of remarriage. But Jesus is here declaring that a woman put away from her husband. And I'm going to say, in this case, the woman is the innocent party. The woman put away from her husband who remarries is committing what? What does he say? <clears throat> Causeth her to commit what? Causeth her to commit adultery. So the answer is, yes, it would be wrong to get remarried. The Lord calls it adultery. All right, now, what if you have never been married before? I'm moving to another case. What if you say, I have never been married before, and I'm considering marrying someone who was previously married? And, and they were put away as an innocent party. Okay, would it be wrong? Would it be wrong for me to marry her? Or a lady to marry him? And again, I think the answer is, is pretty clear. If it's wrong for the innocent party to remarry, then, logically speaking, um, you'd have to conclude it is wrong for you to marry that innocent party. Right? But again, I, th I think Jesus just takes the extra step to nail that down when he says, not only do you cause her to commit adultery, but look at it in verse 32. Whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. So he, he's saying, even if you've never been married before, but you are marrying a divorcee, her spouse is still alive, you're committing adultery by doing so. What if my spouse was repeatedly, unrepentantly unfaithful and I was forced to take steps of separation? Right? And hopefully we're connecting to the interpretation of the exception clause that I understand to be most in keeping with the Scripture. What if I was forced to take action that I did not want to take but my spouse was repeatedly, unrepentantly unfaithful. I desired restoration. <clears throat> um, but they've gone ahead and, and married again. Would there be anything wrong with me considering remarriage? And, and I would say that the general answer 
is that here in Matthew and in all accounts of the Lord's teaching on this subject, he just repeatedly equates remarriage with what? Remarriage with adultery. Romans 7 is the same thing. But I want to have you go to 1 Corinthians 7. I alluded to it earlier tonight. We actually had taken note of it last week as well. But I want to see the same truth stated in a little different way. But notice verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 7. The Apostle Paul writes, And unto the married I command. And then he stops and says, Well, yet not I, but the Lord. And what he's meaning to say there is, I'm actually not introducing anything new. I'm just repeating what the Lord had already said. So Paul is saying, what's about to follow is what the Lord already taught in his own earthly ministry. And what the Lord taught was, let not the wife depart from her husband. Verse 11. But, and if she depart. Now the reality is, we don't have a record of Jesus articulating those words. Okay, But we know, John tells us at the end of his gospel, there's no way everything Jesus said or did could be written down, right? So, so uh, Jesus did say, apparently, I'm, I shouldn't even say apparently, Jesus said it, okay? Under the inspiration of the Spirit, Jesus said a woman shouldn't depart, but if she does depart, okay? And can I, I just say here that I think that that if actually fits the fact that a woman might be forced to take separation by a persistent, unrepentant immorality on the part of her husband. I think that if allows for a fit with the exception clauses I've presented it tonight. All right? But whatever the if is, a woman should not depart, Jesus said. If she does depart, if for any reason like that she departs, what are her options? Look at it. Let her remain what? Unmarried. Or be reconciled to her husband. And then again, he has... No man ought to ever put his wife in that kind of situation. Alright, so Paul is saying that Jesus teaching on the matter. So, honestly, if you scheduled... If you scheduled a counseling appointment with Paul... And you said to Paul, Paul, I had to put away my husband because of his repeated unrepentant immorality. I didn't want to do it. I was forced into that action. I waited. I prayed. I tried to do everything to reconcile. And now he's remarried. What could I do? Paul would have actually said, well, let me tell you what Jesus taught when Jesus was here. Jesus taught if some kind of separation happens. The options are to reconcile or to remain unmarried. Those are the options Jesus gave. And, again, the explanation for why that is the case is Romans chapter 7, uh, remarriage while a spouse is alive is adultery. Now, <coughs> um, someone asked, is there going to be a part three? I was hoping not, but I think there is, okay? Because I'm not answering all the questions. 
and, and at some point we could be overload in, in what our minds are able to handle. But I do want to wrap up this tonight with my own mother's testimony. Um, years ago, a pastor in another state asked me um, if I thought my mother would be willing to speak to a lady that was in this kind of situation. She had been put away. Um, she was for everything he knew and, and other people knew to be an innocent party. She wanted reconciliation, but her husband remarried. That was off the table, and now a man had expressed interest in her. And she had at least one child. I can't remember if there was more. Um, and he asked me, would, would my mom be willing to talk to somebody? I actually said, I don't know. I've never asked her. I can tell you that my mom went through very difficult years, if not a decade or more. And um, I just didn't know she was, you know, how she felt about communicating. I asked my mom, and she said, let me pray about it. And a little while later, I got a letter from her, and she said, um, this, this is some advice I gave to another lady in the same situation. And she said, I don't know if, if you know, Pastor, she mentioned his name, would want me to communicate this way. Actually, when I read it, I read it with tears. I, I put it in my file labeled Testimony from Mom of God's Grace. So here's some excerpts from it. She wrote, I don't know how much you know of my situation. I'm a divorced woman like you, whose husband left, got a divorce, and gave me no choice. I was not much older than you are when this happened to me, and I had two children to raise. The prospect of spending my life alone then and now is not something that I was or am excited about. But I searched the Bible and tried to find what God wanted for my life. Nowhere in the Bible did... I find that God made any provision for marriage again. In fact, everything I could find concerning the subject seemed to be very clear that God considers that adultery. I knew that if I chose to ignore God's word and God's direction, I would take God's blessing off my life and off my children's lives. The snares and trap of Satan and this world are just too scary for that. I wanted God's blessing for myself and for my kids. I also wanted to honor and glorify the Lord as much as possible. Then she wrote, The Lord has honored my desire. Though I certainly was not a perfect mom, I have two children who are not perfect, but who love and desire to honor the Lord. Both are grown and married to others who desire to serve the Lord. I am positive that if I had not followed what I knew was right, my children would not have followed what was right and would be miserable. I had some very well-meaning people tell me, God is such a loving God, he would not expect you to suffer for the sin of someone else. It's okay for you to marry again because you are the innocent party. That sounds nice and loving, but I just could not find it in the Bible. I kept finding it says marrying someone else will be adultery. When I heard you mention your fiancé just as you were leaving, my heart ached. I've seen so many others knowingly or unknowingly disregard God's direction and have some benefit from gaining a spouse, but have greater heartache from the many complications that remarriage brings. God will not desert them and will be able to give some blessing on their life, but he cannot give them the blessing that he wants to give. I know it's not easy. I've now been divorced more years than I had been married. 
but I would not have traded God's day-to-day protection and care for me and my family for the greatest man on earth. God does love you and wants what is very best for you and your daughter. Please don't settle for less, even though it may look better. And she continued a couple personal remarks and, and finished that. And, and with that, brethren, I just want to encourage all of us. If there is some difficult decision facing you, whatever it may be, not just this particular arena, with counsel and where needs be help in working through a passage, maybe more than one passage, I would just urge you to find the clearest statements of Scripture and cling to them by faith and anticipate God giving you his very best. Find the clearest statements of Scripture and cling to them with everything in you and anticipate God giving you his very best. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?